internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a build of God and reach the side of the floor. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by the inestimable Scott Mannion, uh, a gentleman who just graciously had me on his show. We had one of the most stimulating conversations I've ever had. So uh, pretty much as soon as as soon as we cut the mics, I said, you, you got to come on my show. You got to come on my show. So um, I want to just give a, a quick shout out and thank you to Raw Egg Nationalist, who's the one who hooked us up together. Uh, he's been on both of our shows and he's just one of the leading leading guys in the scene and he's making right. a lot of connections. So we're both very grateful to have him. And, um, you know, I'm hoping this is just the second of many, you know, an ongoing conversation between us. So, Scott, can you please introduce yourself to my audience? You have uh, quite the show on YouTube and a, and a podcast that I, I really want people to check out. Yeah, right. So for me, I'm a, or was a film director. I directed commercials uh, and I, but formally moving into drama, that was my uh, area, right? I directed a film called The Defector which was shot by Oscar winner Russell Boyd. It's a Cold War drama, you know, 40 crew were on it. It was a big, uh, a big film um, and set in 1967. So you can imagine, you know, production value, very expensive, that sort of thing. So in that world, I've always been on the conservative leaning side of things, though I do have that personality profile of uh, openness. That's why I'm in, in the industry, I suppose, right? You need that, which you would have as well this high and openness in terms of the personality distribution. But with everything that was happening, I realized that it was already hard enough to make drama. And um, it was already hard enough to make drama. And um, when you add on top of that, the fact that you're gonna have to just make propaganda as well, I just wasn't up for doing that. And, I, and this mission, this wider mission came to me of, I also sold a spec to a company called Benderspink, if you know what a spec screenplay is. So you just look at my IMDb, but I sold a spec to a company called Benderspink. They did uh, The Hangover, um, and they were my agents as well, my managers as well. So, But anyway, point is, living in LA, lived in Australia, in England as well. And uh, whilst there, I was a member of the conservative Friends of Abe group, which is a sort of conservative group there, basically. And... Obviously, this is during the Trump era. Trump's just become president. So on the ground, the, the atmosphere is pretty savage. And, it, and you're essentially hiding yourself the whole time, hiding who you are. And I was always this, always, I wouldn't, I'm sort of a reactionary in a sense as well, though. But point is, I moved into this mission, which was what fundamentally, who are we? What are we fundamentally as at least Anglo-Saxons? What, what are we? What is the ground of our being? And so that became my obsession and my project to disclose that, to uncover the fundamentals of our value hierarchy, you could call it, and the unconscious, you could call it, um, 
what 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 makes us who we are what essence is that what are the cultural things that that aid with that the practices the rituals the procedures the the propositions as well like what what is accurate to that to get pre-enlightenment to get underneath what it means to be english or anglo-saxon but also anglo-american as well what's fundamentally that when you're not egged in when you're not uh, pushed down by the rationalistic propositions from the enlightenment era so that is my project that you see on youtube it's speaking to chaps like you it is deeply now deeply philosophical moving over obviously I have a lot of skills from drama but then bring in i know a lot about philosophy and metaphysics now so you could kind of call me an english dugan i suppose though i'm not a duganist i haven't done enough i just really haven't read enough of his book to be that but people have described me as that um yeah so that's essentially what i do on the channel i look into the fundamental things shakespeare i look into the folk tradition i look into our great mythos like king arthur and robin hood and then soon as uh, soon we'll be looking into the anglo-saxon the old gods into thor woden that sort of thing too and it's true what i'm doing when i, when I uncover it it really fits in these this the symbolic understanding of what these archetypes are that are anglo-saxon and even just european match up with unconscious archetypes as we talked about in our last conversation and from what i've discovered over this three four years four years of work on this is that there's something fundamentally underneath our inauthentic being that has been covered over that we can move away that we can we can clear and 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 con and to get in touch with essentially this folk being that we still have that has survived despite the enlightenment but that's it that's my my mission, I suppose you could say. Yeah, this is great. Um, well, you know, I suppose we should just jump right into it because you've you've already got my synapses firing and I don't want to lose anything you just said. So we're going to just skip all the rest of the preamble I had planned because um, <laughs> because we're kind of just picking this up from our last conversation. And yeah. so when I hear what you're saying, I think and I, I don't know, my mind goes here, I think probably because of like a project I'm working on. Yeah. is that the things you want to examine and the things you want to uncover and the things you want to enunciate and elaborate on are things that other people have looked at in the past that you're building on. Uh, I heard a lot of Heidegger and Jung in the things you just said, especially, you know, archetypes. is That's Jung's kind of key term there. Hmm. But the, the question I have and the thing that I'm very interested in uh, in this realm is looking into these things and how they've changed over time to kind of situate ourselves in the condition that we find ourselves in, in mm. today's world. And um, I think the key thing that you have to bring in is technology. And how does technology change and affect these things you're interested in looking at? And now, now that's where my mind goes. But I have to ask you before you answer, uh, perhaps for you, technology isn't the, the main uh, driver of change, right? So if we're if we're sort of in a different consciousness structure, or if being a different part of being is being unconcealed in the modern era, and where we us living now today, um, maybe technology isn't the 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 uh, what should I say? Maybe technology isn't the um, thing, the operative uh, you know uh, factor that creates the modern condition for you maybe it's something else and if it's not technology what would that be this is such an interesting subject 
And why don't we just jump back to the Greeks when we think about this? Because Heidegger talks about this when he talks about the destining or sending of being. So when you get the fun, yeah, you're nodding no, and you totally it's, know. This is, I just had a, con it's like you're like listening in on my conversations. I was just yeah. talking about this with somebody yesterday. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. It's just crazy no, no, how this happens. I'm, I'm, my it's synopsis are firing too, happening. man. I yeah. can't wait for this conversation. All right. on. I, I won't interrupt you again. Go ahead. No, no, no. Do anytime you want. That's the fun of a great dialogue. So, yeah, the sending of being. So we start with being which has no concepts at all to begin with, like we half talked about last time. Uh, and that slowly changes as you, the Logos, is these covering over ideas uh, change things. But what Heidegger talks about. Is that knowing of being? Because we are almost this, you've got being, uh, is this for audio only or is it also going to be visual, audio only? It's probably, audio right? only, but okay, I want well, the I'll audience just, to know we're both I'll hand, we're talking I'll with I'll our hands here. Yeah, yeah we're talking <laughs> with our hands. So, so okay. Uh, not Essentially, when we are the void in beings. We are beings for being itself, right? So say you imagine a ground, which is just the ground. And then into this void above the ground is us. So that is the sending of this being, into, but it's a void, isn't it? That's, and so this being gets sent there, and that's knowledge. That's knowing something. That's how we know. We're the knowers. That's why we're so much, we're not animals. That's what makes us human is to know. But it's also into the nothing because we're not, we don't have all of being as knowledge. We don't have the infinite knowledge when we know something. So that void is part of the not. So when we differentiate individual things, we are saying it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. That surrounds the thing, the thing, when, we, when our brains pick a thing. Point is, though, all that stuff from the very beginning, that knowing is techne, is knowledge, sorry, is technology. So to say that techne now is something different than back then is actually, in a sense, wrong. The Greeks saw it all as, as techne, not just the machining. It was all connected. Even the first knowing is also techne. So when Heidegger talks about the change of these things to where we are today, it's very clear that the change from moving from Plato and the covering over of being with the ideas, the covering over being with the ideas is covering over of this original being before there's any concepts. We can at least imagine that. Like when I say to the audience who are listening now, the this, this is the entirety of everything you see when you don't have any ideas of individual things yet. That's basically the bottom when you're an animal, essentially. And so that's where it moves. That's where we first begin with the sending or the destining of being, the sending. That's the history of being. We have that history in us right now, in a sense, right? Anyway, so that sending, it begins, he calls it a mistake, that there's a mistake made by Plato as saying, ah, it's the ideas that are this. And so we're just further and further separated from the ideas that are behind manifestation, rather than understanding like um, Heraclitus did. It's this clearing, concealing, it's this combat, it's this appreciating being or getting to being without the concepts at all, not keeping the ideas. But some people say that he, he interprets Plato in a certain way, but this was the propositional way of understanding Plato, so it's true. Uh, uh, in a sense. So anyway, we get to the Christian era. They're doing the same thing. It's further and further away. It's then it becomes uh, it becomes God that we have no contact with it. We have no contact with being. So and then you end up with uh, the rationalists, the uh, 
the Enlightenment age where it's just become then a rational thing. We're not actually contacting with authentic being before the concepts at all. And so meaning, meaning is dissolving. That's what this is. The, this is nihilism, right? We are in a way fundamentally not. We are like we mentioned the void, right? That is the oblivion of being. We are in a sense the oblivion of being. So if we start worshiping ourselves as the founders of being, that's what creates this nihilism where we currently are. So you were talking about technology. What am I talking about when I say authenticness? I'm talking about a auth uh, authentic understanding, a hermeneutic that is un with the understanding of what authentic being is and in touch with authentic being, reinterpreting everything that's been misunderstood. And, and this is in the known, this is just the known part, has been misunderstood as English or whatnot and interpreted in a utilitarian way and a materialistic way and properly interpreting it with a proper hermeneutic with a, that understands what authentic being is. And then on top of that, we have the unconscious, which doesn't exactly fit so well into Heidegger's metaphysics, but when we, we, we talk about mythos, I think mythos is always there. I do think it's underneath. So it's not just, it's not just, uh, when something becomes unconscious, there is room in Heidegger for that, the forgetting of certain things. But I think, yeah, the unconscious is there too. These, you could call them gods if you like, hyper agents, we've forgotten how to see them properly. But they're ancestral. So they still exist. They've just, we just never see them and they come up in dreams. So we were talking about when we had our conversation is that you have the, un, the unconscious comes up in dreams. When, we're talking, when I talk about the value hierarchy, that's what I mean. It's in the unconscious because you can't access a value structure. It's not propositional. It, you can try to render it into a proposition or describe it, but you never have the thing itself. The phenomenologists like uh, Max Scheler, they did a phenomenology of these values. So they get a sense of what the, they're very, th they would call it the content is very thin. You're trying to set a sense, the difference between certain values. Cause you know what I mean by value, right? So you have beauty, you get a certain feeling from beauty, right? So the phenomenologists are breaking it down to its bare minimum with no concepts and just feeling it when they're, when they're doing their analysis. And so he was able to rank things from the top which is the sacred and then there's uh, i can't remember the one that's under that the moral maybe or the beautiful and the intellect those ones and then below that and then you eventually get down to utilitarian material so we just see the world now as material but yeah so i believe i think it's pretty clear because jung saw it in a clinical setting very clear that these archetypes exist as things behind in the unconscious so behind manifestation that we see that render effects in us that work sort of like values they pull us in a direction they are they both attract and impel at the same time so and they haven't gone away yet I, what jung sort of talked about is these things take a thousand years to dissolve so when you look to the italians perhaps their gods have gone let's say those hyper agents like you uh, Demeter, I'm not sure what they are. What are, what are they? Uh, Hera or whatnot. Those hyperations perhaps have. I'm not, haven't looked enough into it to determine that, but the Germanic ones certainly still exist and, and many other ones. And so, like we just talked about last time, you can have emergent ones. Or if you take a more traditional school view, you could say those, these patterns, like Christology says, always just exist out of time. Christ exists out of time. His pattern, he was just waiting to come about. So, yeah. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> good. That, and ending it on, on Christ actually brings it right back around to what 
I wanted to pick up first from there. So everything you're saying is basically what I think is how I think it is. Like I, I, I more or less, <laughs> I more or less endorse the whole like perspective that you just laid out. Now, well, there's a couple of things you said that I want to I want to touch on real quick. So the first thing is I don't I don't know Heidegger quite as well as you do, but I've read him enough that I can I can converse with you on him. Um, and I under and the one of the first things that I encountered when I started looking at Heidegger that really just like knocked my socks off. It really like mm. spun me about was where he said, and I think this may have even been the first thing about Heidegger I read, was that he claimed that there was a mistake and that, uh, the and you said this, the Greeks like made a mistake, they misunderstood being, they they began to live inauthentically and they they sort of created this error, this error, this misunderstanding of being that put us in the West pretty much all the way up until the time of Nietzsche into a misunderstanding of being and that uh, because of this misunderstanding and it, it has to do, I don't want to get too much into that. Like the, to, I don't want to dig too yeah. deeply down on what that misunderstanding is. It'll get us way off track. It's tough, but, to but to fight, off, suffice yeah. it to say, it's basically what you've been talking about, which is like Plato's forms that there are these transcendent things that we can only access through our mind and through our rationality and through our consciousness and that we could never really like embody them. We can only like think about them uh, and that they are purely transcendent. And then the other thing you said about uh, the enlightenment, the enlightenment is basically the same error all over again. And um, so the the thing I was saying before about how it's like you were listening in on my conversation is I was having a private conversation with a friend and we were talking about like, what's the problem in modernity? Hmm. I mean, although technically we're in post-modernity and we're at the end of post-modernity, we're probably in the beginning of digital, the digital era, which I think is different, a different era. But when I say modernity, I'm talking about today's digital world, right? So hmm. what's the problem with the digital era? Well, it's nihilism, basically, to put it very, very broadly. It's nihilism. Okay, so how do we overcome nihilism? Well, there's a cup, there's there's only a couple answers to that question, in my opinion. Like less than five. I don't want to get into all of them, but the one that we were discussing was the shared sense of destiny. If a culture loses its shared sense of destiny, then it starts to wallow in nihilism and sort of um uh, inactivity and inaction. And then it falls into things like hedonism. It falls into things like um, oikophobia, which is hatred of your own culture. And it starts to kind of consume itself and eat itself alive. And I think we wokeness is that condition. So my argument was, well, I don't know exactly how to do this. I think I have an idea how to do this. But somehow we have to like uh, reestablish a sense of shared destiny amongst our people and our people more or less is the West, you know, Western Europeans and people of Western European descent, the Anglo world order, that sort of thing. So when you were talking about Heidegger speaks of like being towards something and destining, he talks about destining. Uh, the reason I started this conversation about uh, technology is because my understanding of the question concerning technology is that uh if you bring in this like uh, external factor of technology and there's two different forms of technology he talks about the, the technology that's in flow or in the flux of nature like a water mill a water wheel a windmill or a bridge mm -hmm. over a, over versus uh, industrial post-industrial technology which is in framing which is like a dam that dams up a river 
a hydroelectric dam or something like that, or 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 just uh, the industry of like say the timber industry, which looks at a forest of trees and sees them just as stock as potential timber stock. Mm. This put this relationship to the world via our technology and via in framing puts us in this era, er, excuse me, puts us in this error that we were talking about, that we we lose our sense of destiny and we become disconnected from our essence and we lose touch with being and we end up in and framing, which is the essence of technology. And we end up living inauthentic lives. We have we we end up existing within a fundamental error in understanding being and understanding ourselves, which is why I think, uh, I think he says this in a different essay though. He says like the task of the modern man is thinking because he says that like, we have to uh, understand how to think about the problem to think our way out of it, which I used to think was bullshit. I used to think that was a bullshit way, but now talking to people like you, uh, I think he's absolutely correct that we can't get out of error without properly conceptualizing the error that we've gotten into and figure out how to get out of it. So, so, and, and then I'll finish with this. Um, to wrap it back up to what you were saying, uh, the thing about Christ, right, is Christ gives us a sense of destiny. It invigorates a whole culture, right? But we live after the death of God, right? We live in the wake of the death of God that Nietzsche did not bring about. He just observed it. He just characterized it. I, I know that's a unbelievably midwit misunderstanding of Nietzsche that he like ushers in the death of God and he ushers in nihilism. This is people who don't understand Nietzsche who want to tear him down. Uh, Heidegger, though, understood. Uh, so what was my point? Oh, my point was that um, we've lost the sense of destiny, right? And we live in the post-metaphysical era, which I think is funny because Heidegger's the one who says that we live after metaphysics, but I think he's actually a metaphysician. I don't know. If... <laughs> yeah, so... So, so my contention and the reason why I'm a accelerationist or a futurist and not a traditionalist or a conservative is that although I feel that, uh, and this is, this is like the Dostoevsky versus, versus Nietzsche contention that I've been talking about with Athenian stranger. Do you know him? Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, if he's not been on your show, you got to have him on. Uh, and we've been going back and forth because the Dostoevsky argument for how to deal with nihilism is to uh, 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 sort of regain naive faith, right? To, to get rid of this rational consciousness structure, uh, the superstructure that has brought us into error, that has brought us into nihilism and regain faith. My argument is that Nietzsche says, well, you can't really do that. Once you've gotten beyond that, you can't go back to like a truly naive faith. And other, I think Heidegger and Spengler say this as well. It's not just Nietzsche. So my argument is that we somehow have to create a new shared sense of destiny. And we have to overcome the death of God. And we have to overcome the nihilism that that ushers in. And we have to, uh, to create a new shared sense of destiny. And the only way, and this is how I tie everything up in a neat little package with what you were saying, the only way to do that is to go back into the unconscious, to re-examine the archetypes, to look at what archetypes have come up, and uh, to like spin a new myth 
about our future and about our destiny to get back into con uh, connection, to reestablish a connection with our unconscious, to examine our mythos of today, uh, to, to understand the archetypes that are in play now and use that to construct a new mythos of who we are and make you know ourselves the the heroes on the hero's journey of where we're going and that gives us the inspiration as a people or as a culture to overcome the nihilism that we're wallowing in i mean none of us truly knows the exact direction we're, we're going in but so a lot of things that came up for me there when we're talking about shared destiny there's a shared destiny of what happens with being early on. So it's about what, how being has been interpreted. When you talk about destiny, yes, and that matters. When we talk about what you're talking about in terms of having a meaning, we mean the for the sake of, which is when Heidegger does his breakdown of in being in time of what makes the world world in a certain way in terms of have its sense of isness i know that sounds weird to people who are listening have its glistening you know when you have a deep everyone at home when you have a deep and meaningful some something just happens and the world glistens so this, there's a meaningful thing has happened you think oh it's just chemical or whatnot no not certainly not necessarily that i'd like to use the word like alignment it feels like there's an alignment i don't know yes, it, maybe that doesn't that's make right, sense though. okay all right that good, alignment all right. is yeah, right because yeah, yeah. that's the all moment right. of vision the moment of vision this comes from the, well, it comes from when you really have the moment of vision, it comes from authentic being. Beauty can lead you to it. I hate the word beauty because it's been killed at the moment, but beauty is, is, let's call it subtle awe. When you find something that has subtle awe, it leads you out of the dead nature of the, of the dead logos that you have of the, all the ideas. You, you, you hear science, it tells you what all everything is. Oh, that's the, that's the wall. There's atoms in that that make that manifest, blah, 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 blah. None of that, you know, that's, that's all rubbish because you, it's, it's sort of a worldview you've never seen. You're not in touch with, with being, how it manifests. But point is, what was my point? For the sake of which? The for the sake of oh, yes. affects I, how the world works, how the world worlds, how it appears, right? Where we are at the moment is our for the sake of, and this isn't us thinking uh, for the sake of as a proposition in our head. But think about it. Why do you live? What, what is the reason you live? That's your for the sake of, but not so much as a proposition. Usually it's something implicit in, in you. In modernism, our for the sake of became will to power. And will to power is simply will, as Nietzsche artic articulates. It's just more. It just means willed more. We are the willed more. You know, Heidegger describes it as the openness. We are the, we are the morer. And let's and Nietzsche, when he talks about the reassessment procedure for all values, it's simply to reassess everything with that. So, well, more. What's what's the thing that's ranked by moreness? But yeah, so that's where we are. So the world appears to you a certain way based on that for the sake of. So what we want is the ethnic ground that gets us back in touch with our for the sake of by exploring the unconscious, by exploring these things. Now, when we say explore unconscious, this is all up for grabs. The idea that the world is just material and this is just in our minds, that's just wrong. We, we, we talked about this before, uh, I think, last conversation. The Bernardo Kallstrop has given a completely rigorous case for his idealism, which people like John Vivekian and scientists completely acknowledge that 
it's just as up for grabs. Their physicalism uh, of their scientism academy is just as much no has no heightened uh, heightened truth than his interpretation, which is idealist. Which would say his idealism, sort of like Schopenhauer, uh, it's connected with that. But he's got a whole empirical case for it, where we we walk around in mind at large, and we are like a disassociated personality. You know, when people have split personality dis disorder, that's essentially what we are. But anyway. Point is, the analytical case is just as high for this. So the idea that you say, okay, we're, these things, we're going to construct it because the world, when we say we're going to construct something, does that mean that, well, the world actually has no meaning and we're just putting something on top of it? Well, hang on, you don't know that. You don't know that. No one does. No they one does. Say, it's they say it with such conviction. Yeah. Don't they say that with such conviction? Yes. But it's like... They do not know... It's yeah. up for grabs. Hyperagencies, cognitive scientists and their research are uh, calling these things hyperagencies at the moment. They don't know whether that's ontological or epistemological. When I say ontological or epistemological, that means is it just a knowledge thing that's wrapped up with our knowledge or is it actually an ontological reality? They don't know that. They don't know that. Quantum mechanics. But when I talk to people, like, what's the path out of nihilism? You, it's definitely up for grabs about what God is or if there are gods. Even Heidegger, that the reason why he put in his fourfold, he chose gods, not God, because he couldn't make a, a decision of what was outside of his phenomenology, what was outside of being. He places the good outside of being and his um, being and time. But that just that means uh, essentially that well, he, he just chooses, I suppose, perhaps that's just to be as different from Plato because Plato has it's a, it's a super thing that is a super reality, but he just places it. Sorry, he makes it historical. The good is historical. Because in his analysis, the, your call of conscience comes from historical being, because when you think about memory, we are constantly out of body. We are constantly out of body towards the world in terms of we are, he calls it the ecstasis, which is ek means outside of body. We are the openness. That's what openness is. And Nietzsche would say rapture, right? Rapture, the vroom, you're wrapped outside of body. That's the basic emotional state. You are this bubble, this existential bubble, and you're always being towards something in that bubble. Um, he places the good in, sorry, yeah. So historical being, you're also outside of body in the past and in the future constantly as well, right? So he places the good of being in the past. But yeah, for the sake of, that's the thing. That for the sake of is how the world worlds, it's a big part of, why you are missing meaning if you don't because we are for the sake of is utilitarian it's material so there is no meaning because we fled into we've not fled into we started to worship ourselves or we're responsible for we construct the ideology we construct the do we or do we uncover it so when we're trying to do this thing you're talking about how much of it's really us how much is something pushing from the unconscious how much is it could it be an archetype of your ethnic being or ancestral being that is saying, hear me, this is what we are. Some things push you and you can't be certain of what, what uh, it's just you. That's, that's modernism. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, scientism, which is always attacking us. We always get pulled into this, don't we? I do too, even with all the work you do. So they're, they're, the, they're, they're my points, yeah. You mean you get pulled into the materialistic thinking and the materialistic worldview, and then you okay. catch yourself, like you catch yourself and see that you've done that. Yeah, well, well, you get pulled into how it feels and looks. So even if you don't, you know what your propositional 
uh, worldview is, but your world, when you're pulled away from being in the sacred, which is what we really need to do, we need to have the sacred, we have to have this ethnic being and hold it fast and protect it from the profane, because profane is always looking to have these ideas and propositions explain or, or which covers it, right? When you explain religion, then the religion, then sorry, the proposition becomes the thing that people look to rather than the actual non-propositional knowledge, which actually gives you touch with. And it's undeniable that there are transcendent truths that cannot be translated into the propositional. So it doesn't matter what you do with science. And when you get to the bottom of quantum mechanics, you realize that, ah, then you're never going to have things for certain as a proposition. Oh, we're going to figure out what consciousness is. Yeah. Are you? So I've actually struggled pretty hard over a couple of years to try to find a way to express what you just said in simplistic, straightforward terms that anyone can understand. And the thing I've come up with is... uh the way I the way I try to encounter uh, explain this is like you have an immediate encounter with the world, uh, which is to say that your experience of being your experience of being alive uh, is unmediated by your consciousness. Now, everyone knows what this is. Everyone has experienced this a million times. So when you're driving. And you're not consciously thinking to yourself, uh, my hands are on the steering wheel and I have to turn, you know, I have to keep them at 10 and two and I have to turn right now and I'm pushing the gas. I'm depressing it only so much so I can go so fast. You just automatically do it. And when I try to think about, I mean, this and this, it all seems so simple once you figure it out for yourself, but this took yeah. me years. It took me years to come to this. When you're trying to understand like, okay, so what, what exactly is Heidegger's solution? Have you, have you read his Dear Spiegel interview? Yeah, I've heard, I've watched it. Yeah. All right, good. Because I've been wanting to talk to somebody about this and I haven't actually done so yet, but it factors into what I'm saying here very much. So um, when I think to myself, okay, what is Heidegger saying that we need to do? What exactly is he proposing? I think he's proposing two things. The first is art, and that one's much easier to understand. That's why he's always talking about poetry. I think he's saying that, like, in order to to grasp this immediacy with experience uh, and this oneness with being, it's to make art. But the other way is is to like live an authentic life, you know. So, what, but what does that mean to live an authentic life? And an even more difficult question than that, which it sucks that we even have to ask this is it even possible for us in this era to live an authentic life and if so like what do we do to make that possible so this and this is why i bring up their spiegel i think he decided that all of this thinking and all of this philosophy and all of this sort of standing outside of being and like conceptualizing it and explaining it and understanding it in all these different ways is itself part of the problem. So he abandoned it all and moved to the Black Forest to chop wood and draw water. Because when you're living, you know, this rustic lifestyle, you are having this immediacy of being. And it doesn't bring any of this stuff into it. And I even have said, and I've gotten pushback for this. I have even said that he, and it seems so obvious to me, that he sees the people living in the Black forest now you can you can extrapolate this to anywhere i mean you could you could talk about the appalachians in america you could talk about the maga people the normies you could talk about uh, the rural people 
uh, the people who don't have college education and they don't have their mind all mucked up with all this stuff. Uh, they are living this authentic immediate immediacy of being right They're They're having this unmediated experience of life and especially like the rural peasantry of the black forest in, in Germany. And in the Der Spiegel interview, you know, they talk a lot about technology, but uh, he, they say, what, what are we going to do? Like how, how is the world going to come out of this error? That we're in, that we're talking about before, this mistake, this misunderstanding of being, this inauthenticity. And he says, well, I don't think we can anymore. We have to wait for a God. So in the meantime, we make art for God while we wait for God. And um, I think he really means like a new religion, <laughs> truly. And, 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 and this is the difficult part of this whole proposition. I'm basically done with my my uh, perspective here. But mm. the difficult part of this proposition is uh, I made the claim that we need to like remythologize our lives and come up through the myths with a mm. sense of shared destiny to give us something to destine towards mm. or be towards together. Mm. So part of that story, in my opinion, is the coming of some sort of figure would it be the 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 return of christ would it be the coming of a caesar figure would it be a new religion like maybe some new prophet is going to arise and he's going to start a new religion so uh i could say more but i want to i want to get your thoughts thus far on on the way i've responded to you yeah it's uh well i suppose you starting with the last thing i suppose you could say that well dugan hints at in his book about heidegger who hints at uh, well, yeah, that that last God came, has come, or came as Christ, um, as if you take Christ to be uh, sort of like Jung talked about his book. There are a lot of people would say that's heresy, but think about where the void in beings for being itself, his being was complete true being. In if you think about your mind as epistemology as knowing the knower that knows being, so what is that? That knowing, that knowledge is being itself in us imperfectly, right? Not perfect, not pure, not pure intuition in, in as in coming in tuition. So if God, uh, if he was the God that came, he was com the complete thing in human. So all of that being not, Im not imperfectly, the sort of having all of being within. So that would be the idea of that is that that God came. And it makes sense if you read uh, uh, Rene Garrard, and he talks about Christ being the final religion as this, this as it comments upon all the others. Um, but aside from that, when you talked about the black country, the people, when he went to the country, I would say those people are closer to being, but they still, of course, they're Christians and such. So there are different things that affect it. And they still have certain forception concepts. They are definitely though closer. They have more authentic existence. I think that's definitely true. So what does it mean to, to what's he talking about when we're, if we're going to become the last God and the, the, I don't know what he calls the people that are the new, new people, guardians of being, what does that mean? In a sense, it's the people that, that find ways to get to authentic being because the last man that Nietzsche talks about, they're the mm -hmm. people that, that think that all the technology and semblance is being or the propositions are being. 
That's so right. What, yes, what, that's a good way to put it. I, I've never heard it that way. What happens is, is that those people end up thinking, oh, how great is this technology? And there's nothing, look, I'm not, again, like Heidegger, I'm not against the technology because that's what knowledge is fundamentally. But it's run away with itself. It's, it's, we are its cogs. It's not our, it's not in our for the sake of, it's still all being though. It's, but the gods have turned away. So again, it's not as if the gods still ex there's, exist or can exist. So we just don't know. To say that we do is wrong, especially when you look at quantum mechanics, for instance. That really set everything on. Imagine the scientists would have hated discovering quantum mechanics as, as Einstein did. A God does not play dice. Well, yeah, he does play dice. That's the point, actually. Um, <laughs> And thank God, really, because we would have just been left with this totally uh, rationalistic, boring world. But yeah, so against nihilism, um, really, it's about getting, getting over the line, because we are fundamentally this void in beings, like I said, uh, for being itself. We started to take ourselves as the for the sake of, therefore, all the way the world worlds has no glisten to it, because we thought we think it's us. This is sort of the postmodern people. Nothing necessarily wrong with a phenomenological analysis that's postmodern, because really Heidegger is the birth of that phenomenology, right? But it's people that don't aren't uh, uh, postmodern traditionalists, people that just take it that oh, I can just anything's viable. That's just not true. Um, you can use postmodernism as Geo does, Geo Panacetti. Uh, all it really says is that perspectively you can't have the truth, the full and only truth. I would say there's limited truths. Um, but it doesn't mean there isn't a truth, even if we can't have it, right? There are things that are in the ball yard and those things they have aren't in the ball yard. So Heidegger has this great uh, conversation with a chap called someone younger. Where yeah, er Ernst, about, Ernst Junger. Yeah, he talks about being and about getting to the line. How do we get out of this nihilism? It's this particular question. They talk about that. He's saying that you can't get over it. You can't jump over the line and you're living because that's where being is. That's the clearing, concealing line of being. That's where, that's the truth line, because beauty leads you to it. That's where beauty and truth merge, in a sense, because when you remove all the concepts, right, you've got all these concepts, forceptions that control how the world worlds to you. When the world looks the way it is, and which is the inauthentic, which you, we all have, which is how the world looks to us, you've got all these concepts, scientism that you're taught from when you're a young person. That's controlling how it looks to you. When you go, and because it's scientism, it, the reason why it doesn't glisten, or, or the gods have turned away, as, he, as Heidegger would say, is because of the way of what the type of knowledge is, is, is that every, the propositional worship, the worship of the utility and material, is implicit in all the stuff we're taught in high school and state school and all this stuff. So the world worlds that way. And so some people are Orthodox Christians, so they have these little bastions of the sacred space, which is not explained. So that's one thing. You can still get ontological access to authentic being through those, through the Orthodox Church and stuff and such. So that's all up for grabs. <laughs> you can't make a decision about that sort of thing until you've actually tried it, I suppose you could say. So I, especially I would say to people that question that, even like full-on Nietzschean atheist types, is it? Well, hang on. Look at quantum mechanics all the way to the bottom. Look at the different viable theories for it. It's all up for grabs. That stuff. But yeah, does that? Oh wait, I talked about the line. The line. You never jump across it. Where away from the line, 
which is that's the line of clear and concealing of being. That's the authentic line where there's no concepts. And it's this glistening, beautiful thing. Yeah. Think about it. If you had no concepts and no understanding of reality, you're a hu human, you'd woken up, you're like a baby. Everything's awe. That's authentic being, right? And when we touch it occasionally, and it makes everything that we know move to its proper place. When we touch, that's the moment of vision that Heidegger talks about. It's like, bang. And you, you can get towards that moment of vision by breaking down bull shit. There's a practice that you can do. There's a thing called the Forum, which was uh, Ernest Earnhardt, I think his name is. There's a book called um, Speaking Being, which talks about this. It compares Heidegger and uh, Earhart, I think his name is. And that practice still is in existence. And they do this. They break down your past narratives and just pick the events, not your violin story of them, right? It's a, anyway, the book articulates it, but the book almost works like the forum itself. You get a mini moment of vision uh, when you break down your narratives of what you think the world is um, to it's actually what really was in your having been in the past. And so that clears the semblance. You get closer to the authenticness. And so what happens is when you get closer to, and that's truth, at that line of, does that make sense? The clearing concealing line. Well, it does to me because I've read Heidegger. I wonder if you can articulate for the listener who hasn't read Heidegger what you mean about the clearing, because I know what you mean, but I don't think I would had I not read. Uh, I think it's in the letter on humanism where he where yeah, I read yeah, about Yeah, you're it. right. Clearing. OK, I won't say. I'll just say the line is where the truth is. Well, I think you I think you should enunciate. Well, finish your thought and then let's explain what what the clearing yeah, so, is. So you go. Clearing all the concepts, like we mentioned baby. I think we're getting close there. People can understand that when you're a baby. You have no forceptions, no concepts. Yes, ch children are in this state at all times. That's yes. right. Um, you can get to that. The Greeks were in there. That was pre mm -hmm. any concept. That's why Heidegger goes back there. That's even Plato still can get a sense of it. We can't. We're so far away from it unless you use practices like this. LSD or whatever, ayahuasca. People misuse this stuff. I, I don't use it or whatever, but that gives you an idea of pulling away the concepts and what it is when these things but the he, heidegger is very specific he says the greeks weren't just chaos they weren't what wagner was doing with music because what wagner was giving you elation in every direction right the composer thinking that that's where the greeks were he said they had these mighty early concepts which you could think of their gods they're not invented by them because the concept doesn't come from you it comes from being Right. So when the concept emerges, where do you get the idea from? And especially the Greeks originally, they're getting it from being. Because there's a book, also another interesting book that talks about primitive mentality. We had a lot of our Victorian people go out to the tribes and such to get a sense of what their mentality was. And it's like this. It's but they're not the Greeks. He yeah. He says the Greeks have these mighty early concepts, but it, it was a it's a thing of flux at that time. You have no concepts yet. It's being itself, and you're absorbing it, and things. Things are clearing themselves. By clearing means coming out of this background, thisness, this background, everything without concepts. Because the way you see the world at the moment is you just add up all the different things and that's the whole world, right? They don't have those things that are categories of things that haven't been educated in that because this is pre-logic and logos, right? So those things clear themselves to the Greeks early on. That's the gods in a way. It shows itself. That's the clearing. And the concealing is the closing up again. Because you can't have endless, infinite being coming into your brain, into your 
into your knowledge because it would just kill you because you'd have awe all the time. You wouldn't be able to look at anything, would you? You just have permanent awe. So you get a moment of it. Yeah. Does that make, I think that might give people a sense of what. Well, that right. makes sense. The way I see it is like um, the concept, the way Murchi Eliad uh, explains it is very, very simple language and simple concepts with the, the book, The Sacred and the Profane. Yeah. And he talks about how you walk around in the profane world and everything is inert matter. And then um, it, and, and this 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 is like an evolution uh, throughout civilization, like o- over time it changes. So mm-hmm. in an earlier, like an animistic time. Now, this would be for us like the early Greek time, like the time of not of Homer, but the time of the Iliad, like the time of 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 Achilles and Agamemnon, where they're. Uh, existence in the world is like permeated with the mythological reality of the gods, right? And they had like uh, different places they could go. So, so the, the the god of the the god of the sea lives in the sea. So when you're on the sea, you're in like you're like in contact with the sacred uh, and the divinity. Or um, the the gods on Mount Olympus, you could see Mount Olympus from you know from town. And that's where they live. They're up there. So so there's like this um, interplay all the time with the sacred and the profane. And then over time, these things kind of get like relegated to different areas as the, and this is how I see it. You like accumulate you, the culture accumulates all this like dross of experience and history. And this is what you're saying about all the things that in the world, in the world that are like each one thing at a time and they all add up together into this kind of like big conceptual pile in your in your brain as time goes on and the more that stuff like crowds your consciousness the consciousness of a civilization the more it like crowds out the sacred so you know in one era you're walking through the world and you're constantly encountering the sacred and and it, and the characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey are bumping into naiads and dryads and cyclopses and satyrs and gods and goddesses everywhere they go they're coming out of the forest they're deep in the caves they're on the rocks in the ocean they're everywhere um but then later it's like well no the only place you could go to really encounter this is to go to the soothsayer or go to the yeah. temple or go to the oracle and those are the only places where the the sacred uh, is relegated to and, and resides. And you can just extrapolate everything you say about the Greeks, basically, in the whole trajectory of the classical world. You can extrapolate right onto Western civilization. Um, um, so you have the church, like you know, uh, the 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 sacred is. You have to go to the church to like have the sacred rites, you know, bestowed upon you by by the priest. But then eventually. After the Enlightenment, even that gets washed away and everything is profane. So it's like we're walking through a purely profane world. um, And the argument, I guess, would be right from someone like me or you is that actually that profane stuff is always there all the time. That unconscious mythology, the gods are all still there. You just aren't like able to access them because yeah. there's a barrier built up and that is your rational consciousness structure or, or this yeah. dross of you know yes, hopefully 100%. i made that clear yeah no no that's great man that's awesome is it that our arrogance was it's well what it's come to anyways the logos in a sense is arrogant is that you, it thinks that we can possess all this stuff and it what happens is it covers over these explanations cover over and those explanations are all propositional and those propositions aren't being 
they are like a part they are part of it the part of how it but we now we know there's spectival knowledge participatory knowledge procedural knowledge and these are different things that give you can actually give you access again to the sacred we covered it over with propositions about how we are and that proposition is a description of something it's, it's if this and that you know it's logic that's logos it's the particular type of um knowledge but it makes us think oh that's explained now but that's why the gods flee so you talk about homer and you could say that these they would they would see these things jung talks a bit about this is that no they would see gods out there they saw them and that makes sense when you think about it it's before you cover it over with logic which is what heidegger calls the they or das man which is the publicness the public description of what things are which isn't truth it's a interpretation of it and it's obviously wrong wrong it's, it's almost it's, like this like derivative truth like a small yes. t truth that's like on a yeah, lower small level t truth. Like, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. like okay. that's great dude that is 100 <laughs> right it's small t propositional correctness not real uh yeah correctness right and so they lose touch they and but, but they still could feel the attunement of the god and they could go eventually to the temple which was a that's why it's closed off precinct that's why you need to do all these things that's why the vikings had a golden chain around things and that's not to say and then people bring their modernistic idiot interpretation they think oh that's because they have this or evolutionary psychology and this and that no you don't know that there are those gods aren't this higher order say you have okay you describe something like a cognitive science scientist you say okay the church is the body of christ what does that mean there's a hyper agent there's a spirit you think about it symbolically we need to deep get into the symbolic worldview to go oh yeah the church is the body of christ and what's driving it is christ's spirit back then they just felt and saw christ in the way they operated right and so and they would see it visually probably as well especially when you go far enough back that's not to say there's some material world outside of it it's hallucination you don't know that's up for grabs so <laughs> that's what phenomenology gives us and so those explanations those logic and as plato and you know plato wasn't necessarily wrong about some of these things i'm not a great platonist so i have to just take heidegger's interpretation of plato but people do talk about how uh, to take just the ideas theory is to not but maybe those people actually are reading too pushing too much into heidegger I mean, and heidegger really did rediscover things in this but point is though that they're close to the line the line is the point of where knowledge is created essentially that's the line so the line of that's where being manifests because it's an instant it's an instant it's no you don't get it in bunches it can't be the reason you can't get being in uh in two second um uh, what do you call it two second clumps that are that length of time is that you need the knot to actually be who you are does that make sense so you get one bit of being it has to instantly turn off in terms of being in a, a, a now a constant now right that's authentic being if you got more than just a now and you got four seconds of of pure being then you couldn't be who you are because what makes to understand or have a knowledge of who you are you have to be distinct and different from that being don't you and to be different from that being you need to have the not which is oh i'm this and not that and have the limitation so does that make sense is that oh we, yeah it makes sense and this is something you like develop like you you don't start out that way like as a child you, it's like you grow into that as your consciousness develops mm. 
At least that's yeah. how I see it. Yeah, that's right. So uh, these, and and I just want to repeat again: as these higher order things, we can we can be all rationalistic, and I know a lot of science, man, so I can happily play the scientism game and give you all the neuroscience and all this stuff about higher order organisms and such, and make you feel comfortable by saying that. Um, but really, it will come down to as Jung did. He did the same thing, is that he gave everyone the empirical explanation. But the truth was, he wasn't an empiricist. He was an idealist. He was more Platonist. He was more what Heidegger is, really, but more so. He's more Platonist. So he believes these things are real. He doesn't just think they're in the unconscious. He doesn't just think they're, oh, that's just in my head. No, he thinks they're behind manifestation, too. That, that an archetype can be both in the unconscious. He thinks everything is psychic. He thinks there's a disconnection between us as a disassociated thing from mind at large, you could call it. And behind mind at large, th those things are, are, exist too. The archetypes and daemons exist, hyperagents, angels, they exist. Also in the unconscious, you have the archetypes and the contents of your dreams fill into that. But point is, that's still up, that, that theory is up for grabs too. We can't. Yep. Yeah, sorry. Go, uh, go no, ahead. no, don't be sorry. But uh, you made me think of something. So Jung, in this essay that I believe is called The Meaning of Psychology Today, and I know I read it in the 10th volume of his uh, collected works. And he this essay is really important to, like, understand, you know, I, this is like a very little red book of his. I don't ever hear people talking about it. I didn't even know it existed until a couple of weeks ago. I discovered it on archive.org. And I read this uh, essay, which is really a speech he gave. And to connect to what you're saying, he, or to, to enunciate what you're saying, he says that there is, he, 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 this is like, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words because what he says is just so flies in the face of like materialism and and, and empiricism mm -hmm. that it's almost like hard to fathom. But he he says directly, it's not that we are these like individual consciousnesses that have these things contained unto ourselves in our minds that are the archetypes. Rather, rather, and I take him at his word at this. There is this unconscious realm that our consciousness and our egos basically like crystallize out of. And that as we are persisting as a conscious ego individual, that this unconscious realm is like, like, it, it's like we're like, uh, it's like underlying everything. It's undergirding everything. And that when we go to sleep, we sort of recede back into the like soup, this primordial soup of the unconscious realm, and we access it through our dreams. Mm. Now, um, I think I believe that, mm. but for him to put it so explicitly in that in that essay or in that speech, um, you can no longer you're no longer in the realm of the way people typically seem to talk about Jung, which is that all of this is a metaphor. Mm. Um, I think he believes it's all literally true and that these things sort of like uh, our dream, like these things arise in our subconscious, in our dreams. And that when we wake up, I mean, I think this is the claim of psychoanalysis, isn't it? That when we wake up and we're persisting in the waking world, we're actually being 
sort of, uh, I don't want to say controlled, but we're being influenced by these subconscious forces without our realizing it. We think we're in control of everything with our rational mind, but we're actually being, some of us are being completely modulated by these things. And some of us are being like slightly influenced and nudged along by these unconscious forces. And that's why they say we have to do psychoanalysis, right? So that we can like recognize these unconscious forces and overcome them so that we don't fall victim to, because some of them are, are like our lower selves, you know, our desires or our, our fears or our phobias. Um, and they can get the better of us and they could prevent us from, you know, maturing and, and achieving our, our, you know, destiny or, or, or living authentic lives or achieving our being to the fullest potential. The question I always have with that is, and I'm still working with, because these are questions I'm still asking and trying to get to the bottom of trying to map these hyper agencies, because the, when I talk about the value hierarchy, the English value hierarchy and this sort of thing, that's a, a modern values or modern way of talking about it. But it, obviously, uh, there's something interacting with that. Daemons, you could higher order phenomena that uh, if you want to describe what a hyper agent is, an agent is a uh, phenomena that can adjust its procedures based on its feedback from the environment, change its procedures to move towards its for the sake of its outcome. Right. So what's that? That's a being. It has agency. It's hyper means over. So it's across many agents. It's across. Sorry. It's across many things. Uh, if you say Christ, right, it's uh, you can think about it symbolically and use the text. Christ is in the Gospels. He's in church. He's in your chapel as a spirit. That's a hyper agent that has a hyper arena. Right. And so the hyper we see hyper it's over you use the symbol that's in the mythos to uh, mediate what the hyperagent is and where it is, because you can't have the whole understanding of these higher order organisms as humans. That's why we use the symbol and mythos, because they're transcendent truths, right? So my thought about what you're talking about, uh, and the question I'm still asking is, were the ancients always in that? Are they always in that? So when we're talking about now where we are with modernism, we go back to Heidegger when he talks about ascending of being and where we are the history of being is in us right now i think that's what he talks about so all the concepts all the layers from from plato onwards we have that plus more in our forceptions in our concepts so that's all there the history of being from the first when it first clears and sends when when i say first clears and sends i mean when we first have logic and have knowledge and one, again like i explained earlier knowledge is us as a sort of like a copy of being itself right and the first humans get a sense of what things are they articulate that oh that dog or that it, whatever that's a simpler way of talking about it were they always in this unconscious space where the gods are and they had none of the they didn't have an unconscious conscious they were conscious of it but all as one. So their conscious unconscious the line was here the line was connected so they were conscious of stuff but these gods that are that get thrown into the unconscious, where we are, they were like this. So I'm making a hand symbol and pushing backwards with it. So the Greeks, when they're close to it, they are conscious of it, but they're right on the line we talked about before. So they're seeing the gods. The gods are there. Uh, does that all get pushed unconscious? So still exists now. So the structure of their cognition is different because, again, people will go, "Oh, what do you mean biologically?" 
but no, the structure of how the world worlds to you is based on metaphysics. It's how it's this stuff, logic, the stuff that we have that's given to us, right? So it's not, I'm not necessarily talking about a genetic thing here. So yeah, that's my, the one thing I'm always asking is, is that what it was for them? And I'm pretty sure it was. Um, the influence question, yes, I agree with you. I think these hyper agents are affecting us. And the more you, you don't want to get too, I don't want to sound too woo about all this. But yeah, the more you think, hmm, was that really me that pulled me in that direction? People will always jump to biological reasons. Oh, that was just this, or that was a chemical. That's a bias we have, isn't it? Think about it. When something weird happens to you, when some drive or pull, the always first thing you attribute it to is, oh, I'm tired. Oh, it must be the coffee. It must be this. Yeah, you might want to think about if you are on some really strong drug or something. But was it? Think about other things that it could be, man. Because we always jump to the material one first because of our bias. Um, yeah, so that's my response to that. And I think, yes, they are in existence. They're not, it's not woo. You can see them very easily when you look at Jonathan Pajot as he talks about it, the spirit of a city. You say, okay, yes, the city has an angel. The ancients would have just seen it as that. They would have just seen an angel, right? It's not that they just draw it. But the fact is the symbols can be used to mediate it. They're a more efficient way of understanding it. And now, as you've well articulated in your new essays, is sometimes you have emergent unconscious symbols, new ones, that can be used to mediate phenomena that aren't known yet. Because when Jung talks about symbols, he means, of course, everything in your personal unknown, or I don't know what a leaf is. You can, someone gives you a symbol that can help you articulate a leaf. But when he talks about a pure symbol, he means one that humanity as a whole doesn't know, or a whole culture just does not know. He'd say, he'd say that's a true symbol. And they're sort of the ones that you were mentioning last episode, is that we don't have something to articulate what this is yet as a whole. But really, we use symbolic language all the time. We use symbols to mediate things. But the true symbol that he talks about when he articulates symbols is that, the thing that emerges from the unconscious to mediate transcendent truths, which is what all mythos is, all great mythos. And so when I talked about in our Twitter thread, that's what I'm talking about, is that the Cultural corpaconia, the cultural stuff, the marvel. When people call that myth, that's not myth. Yeah, you can't just. Admit, it's not deep down. Myth is something that's that usually is used to articulate a transcendent truth. It comes from the unconscious. So, my theory or my thing, what I posit, which so many have posited before me, is that there's something authentic underneath that these crappy myths don't touch. The one we can clear that there's things that we can get to that are. And we there better be or we're effed that we better hope there are or we're just this and think about it when they try to do those liberal experiments on children to see oh we can just socially program they turned out the same didn't they so there's something in us that's collective whether that's proceed you know you posit whatever that is but it's i don't think it's just genetic there's something metaphysical and unconscious about it to call it biological i think it's just to misunderstand it there might be some connection there i don't know i'm not a genetic expert but yeah anyway what's your response to that Oh, I, I have a few. So the first thing oh, you were talking about, like the city has an angel. There's like beings or deities like uh, ascribed to like different. I mean, you said city, right? You, you mentioned Jonathan Pagot. Mm. Pajot. Is that what you were saying? Like there's like a, a deity that like watches over a certain town or village or city or what did you mean by that? Well, I just mean as a simple example. I don't mean there used to be. The, the way well, yeah, you right. Saw it. I meant more just as a way, well, look, there's the governing thing. You write a letter to the city. It has a distributed element to it across many people. 
Uh, you write to the city. That's how he describes. I'm just trying to give a simple example. Like Father Christmas is another one that Paggio would often use as a way of explaining it. Uh, but what we're talking about are implicit ones that we've forgotten that are affecting us. They exist too. So I'm giving you ones that are conscious, that are easy to understand, like a team. When you are a sports team, a distributed cognition begins to form between you. And there's a, uh, there's a we space, an identity that transcends the individuals that becomes its own sort of being. Um, the mascots reflect that, right? It has a for the sake of, doesn't it? It has a for the sake of that we're talking about. Yeah, and there's, about there's a signifier or some sort of binding agent, some metaphysical binding agent, some archetypical binding agent, which is a deity or a being or, or a Christ-like figure that um, uh, kind of creates this like epiphenomenon of a group collectivity, group consciousness. And uh, sometimes... See, 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 this is my whole thing about like the astral flight simulation, right? Is that in the past it was and you you mentioned something before about um, how Christ was like felt and seen by everybody every day at, a, at you know, in the Middle Ages or whatever, in the pre-modern time, like he, he he imbued and undergirded like like the the invigorating mode of society. The thing that the thing that sort of, uh, well, I guess gave their lives meaning gave their culture cohesion. And this was all, of course, brought together, not just by like a state of consciousness in your mind, but also by like festivals and going to church every Sunday and like having the priests and the monks like be integrated wholly into your uh, daily mode of being, um, your daily life, right? So all these things like bound it together. And that the whole thing about like nihilism, the lack of shared destiny is like that's all gone. That's that's mm. all like lost now because everything's materialistic. So uh, when I was talking about like the differentiation between. Um, so so what I'm saying is like we need like a new mythos mm. to bind us back together because like the 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 powers that be the regime is actively working against that. You know, they're actively trying to break that down and they're using things like uh, mass immigration. They're using things like uh, woke, woke culture. And the thread in Twitter, the Twitter thread you're talking about was about like the cultural engineering of the woke stuff entering our myths. So our myths aren't even like myths anymore. They're like engineered propaganda. And it's mm -hmm. not something that like uh, resonates with the viewer on a subconscious level. It's rather something that's like superimposed onto like our culture to like propagate an ideology or to keep an ideology like going. This stuff like gets down. I firmly believe this. This stuff like drives a wedge down into the fissure that's already like forming in society and just pushes things apart farther until it just crumbles eventually. Um, and another word for this, of course, is entropy. This is like mm. cultural entropy. And there does come a point in time, I'm sorry, where there's just no more like usable cultural energy uh, left yes. to, to make anything new. Uh, the entropy does at some point reaches a critical mass and like overtakes everything. So, um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you could have a bunch of individuals, right, who are like individually like having these conversations and individually reading Heidegger and individually trying to pursue this authentic life. But like this is like a mad scramble uh, while while the lemmings are running over the cliff. It's not going to bring society back. Society will not be rescued by people reading Heidegger 
and uh, going out and trying to live authentic lives like through whatever methods he claims you should use. Rather, there's going to have to be some sort of uh, overarching transcendent uh, mythological figure or creature or idea or story that uh, is like it, it's going to have to like like how I said the woke is like superimposed on top. Yeah, this is going to have to come out from the bottom. Yes, it's going to have to come out 100%. from the unconscious. But yes. and the, the reason why I mentioned the astral flight simulation is that like before this like transcendent realm that sort of permeated reality that imbued us with the sac sacrality and divinity Christ the Christ figure that mm. animated our society now that that's gone right mm. where's it going to come from because that transcendent realm doesn't exist anymore the internet is like the simulation mm. of the transcendent realm and my contention is that the 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 internet is the thing that binds us all together it it literally binds us all together in the web, in the network. Um mm. and my thought is that like the 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 um internet is and this is I didn't come up with this, but the internet is like an externalization of the collective unconscious. You can see it all right there because there's like an immediacy with the things you say and do online. Um you're sort of being like more your authentic self when you're in front of the video camera than you are like if you're in like a cultural milieu you might not mm -hmm. be quite as likely to you might have your super ego you know clamped down and you're not going to just act however you want in a yeah. public setting but you will online especially if you're like just typing and it's just text right so my thought is maybe some uh transcendent figure will arise out of this synthetic unconscious and this mm. archetype will be this like and i don't know if like if you read like neuromancer right this is in neuromancer but it's like an ai it's like a transcendent mm. all-knowing ai being that like arises out of the 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 what does he call it a uh, cyberspace and like takes over the world or at least tries to take over the world you know but will it be like AI becoming like the next God, the next like super figure, the next whatever you were calling it, like the meta character? Or will it be a person who is able to like utilize all of this, like Elon Musk, who like is like harnessing the hive mind of Twitter? And what is he going to do with that? Is he going to just use it to try to make money or is he going to try to use it to like become some super figure, you know? Yeah. Could, well, that, I mean, I've, and that many different. It could go many different ways. It doesn't have to go yeah. the way I explained it. No, one hundred percent. I mean, when I look at him, I often thought, hmm, perhaps he's the antichrist. Because what really, in a sense, uh, what happens with the internet is that we all are connected, and we notice that the more we're connected, the more we're pulled apart. The more we're connected, the less meaningful things are. So, what really happens with that is it's intersubjective and framing. So it actually facilitates a. Uh, making the person more of a subject as in making them more underthrow as in pulling them further away from being yet linking them to other people further pulled away from being so what does that mean it means you're all linked all these people linked in an instantaneous further pulled away from being so that is almost like a web of nihilism if we look to the ground like we say again there's the, the ground of being and then we have us as people 
pulled away, but we're all linked in this web of proposit, which is a proposition. Basically, all the code is proposition. Da -da 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 -da, how things link together. Think about it. If you imagine it in your mind, a giant web where all the individuals together are further, further pulled away from the authentic being, which is around them, which they could have access to, and everything's covered over. It's more, a sort of semblance. It's further. Really, that's nihilism. It's pulling us towards nihilism. So, what happens with that? Either people become the last men from the internet and the techne, the complete last men, is that they forget it's even a question. They forget that there is even an authentic being. They forget. They just think that's how it is, right? And everything else before was just a delusion. They, they think, and that really actually would just descend and become animals again. And this is why I wrote a post about this where I said the transhumanists have got it the wrong way around, is that they, they think they're uh, ascending, but what they've done is actually become... Transhumanists are transanimalists by having no sacred and nothing above the material. They are digging further into the material and they should be looking to something outside of being. They're digging into beings because they take being as the combination of things, which is where the concepts are, rather than what's behind that. What's the this, the this behind it. Even Nietzsche was sort of saying that by talking about becoming, even though with becoming, he ends up really taking being a, as a whole for beings um because that's the trouble we've got all the forceps the concepts of what individual things are so we take that as the becoming and that is that that infects how we see ourselves but yeah so that's the intersubjective point I, I thought about there's so many great things that came to me that's also das man in a way it's publicness yes we're, we're true to what we are as subjects that's true we reveal stuff that is true that we wouldn't perhaps do if we were in a public scenario. But what still happens is we still get pulled away from being. So even though it is true to your, I think it adds depth to what, it adds more subjectness to you. It makes you more Cartesian in a way. And what I mean by Cartesian is just more disconnected from world, yet even connected with the internet. So I think that'll become more prominent. I think there's going to be a group of us that are, have the goal within that are connecting to authentic being. What Heidegger talks about this problem, which he's recognized, is what he realizes that, ah, we need to flip all of being, is that everyone has to flip it. It's not just one person, or, or you prepare the ground for it. Groups of people, elites, whatever, prepare the ground for it, then it can flip for everyone else. They can get closer to this authentic being. But that's his trouble, that's what troubles him. He says, only a God can save us. Um, so it's preparing the ground for the last God. Is what he talks about and so that you could say that that's our mission and so to prepare the ground for the last god is to sort of be nietzsche's overman in a way it's to get in connection as an individual to authentic being to and you do that too you have to understand the sending of being to do that and the sending of being is the history of being which is back to the greeks but also it's all because heidegger doesn't understand sort of cognitive science at the moment so he doesn't he sort of he Basically, his innovation was to realize that cognition was extended, that we are also world. But yeah, cognitive science has come forward. So we know there's other ways of investigating into the past of what we were, because you can only get to being by understanding what you are. You have to know what the forceptions are that make how the world worlds to you, which is oh, the Cartesian or the science that came before. Because when you're educated in state school, that affects how the world worlds to you. Like we talked about earlier, you have to get, you have to dig into the history of it. So that's what we're doing. That's what uh, Astral's doing. That's what 
I'm doing. You have to understand the past. The past isn't past. It's in your having been right now. It's in your foreceptions, in your conceptions. Those things haven't gone away. So to actually get to it, to actually get to how we might even start to build the ground, to flip it away from this utilitarianism and material to perhaps get the gods to face us again, because he says they're turned away, right? Is to do that, is to look into what has been, but in some sense still is, that actually gives form to who we are right now and to how being right, you listening to this right now, how it's, how being is manifesting to you right now. Understanding that is not just looking at it, you have to dig into what gave its form, how it, the world manifests to you right now, listening to me and astral speaking to you right now is given form to this history. History gives form to it rather. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I love, I love what you were saying about uh, people being pulled away from being and that like one being small B being individuals is pulled away from big B being, which is authentic, authenticity and the essence of humanity whatever our essence may be uh we we end up in error from for one reason or another right and uh so i get pulled away and then i bump up against scott and i pull scott away and it it like it like balloons out into like the whole civilization is like pulled away from being right so the way i would characterize that is that we are unmoored we're unmoored from the embeddedness of of our like interplay with the world and of our interplay with the world is of course both like our rootedness in say who we are as a people and where we came from as a culture mm. but also the gods or you know it would just be christianity for for the west mm. mostly for the modern west we're unmoored both from the traditions and the place and the culture and we're set adrift and we're set adrift in this digital ocean. And this digital ocean is us in the state of being inframed by technology that Heidegger talks about. And this digital ocean is the state of humanity in the age of Aquarius, which just we just passed into. And the age of Aquarius is uh, defined astrologically in the zodiac signs by the pouring out of the cosmic waters by the god from his bottomless vessel so he 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 uh he uh initiates a deluge upon the world that drowns us so uh mythologically right mythologically this is the story of global warming that the the story our science our mythology is telling us now uh is is i think an ascertainment sure of something that's happening in reality the the, the global climate change but the story that we're telling ourselves is coming from the unconscious. And that story coming from the unconscious is that uh, sea level is going to rise and everyone's going to be drowned and civilization is going to be destroyed. I think this is a subconscious uh, sort of intu intuiting of the condition of humanity in the age of Aquarius uh, when we've been, you know, the cosmic waters have been dumped on us and we're completely unmoored from the past, from tradition. And we're sort of like floating in this uh, cosmic water, and I'm calling it the digital ocean, because we're 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 inframed, right? And in framing, by the way, for people who haven't read the question concerning technology, goes back to what Scott's been saying this whole time about materialism, 
and 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 uh, utilitarianism. That's what in framing is. It's seeing the world through a utilitarian, materialistic out, uh, perception, right? And that feeds technology. And that is that is what builds technology. And that is what uh, creates the condition in which technology thrives. And that is what pulls us away from being. And that is what pulls us away from our essence. And what I mean by that, and I've been wanting to clarify something I said earlier in the discussion. When I was talking about how Heidegger observed like the people in the Black Forest and said that they had like the more authentic existence. And then I mentioned like the Appalachians or the rural people. That's that's what the Americans like equivalent is. Right. Well, the first thing I think when I think of those people are people who are unfortunately it's, it's, it's a travesty and it's a crime. It's a crime against humanity. But I think of people who are who are strung out on fentanyl or strung out on meth, or I think of people who are addicted to their phones or addicted to television. This is why I say you can't take technology out of the equation of your assessment of being in the modern world because the error that those people find themselves in is one initiated by technology because they're television addicts. Or they become video game addicts or they become literal drug addicts, um, which is a slightly different thing. But honestly, it's not even that different because meth and fentanyl are technological drugs. They're chemical uh, creations. Uh, they're, synth they're synthetic drugs that are chemical synthesis. <laughs> you get what I'm trying to say. Synthesized <laughs> yeah, yeah. chemicals. So th this is all a form of living in error. This is what I mean by being unmoored. Mm. they're they're stuck and trapped in in what the buddhists would call samsara mm. but it's like this technological samsara mm. yeah you've you finished that um yes dude when you said that it just lit up for me is that you're i just wrote you are right on my piece of paper which is this climate change oh you're thing. a very good note taker <laughs> <laughs> yeah. astral is but, right <laughs> astral's right but no i think you're onto something there man and i hadn't thought about that before is that that whole thing is probably fake well fake it's a symbolic expression yeah from the unconscious yeah, yeah. it's actually a true expression but the data is all wrong you know the myth yeah, yeah. is wrong exactly the right symbol the myth is a symbol to reveal the story the, truth. the narrative is yeah, the... yeah it's a symbol given by the unconscious it's a very it's an old symbol though it's not a new one it's it's an old symbol given to the unconscious which is given to these people they're interpreting it as a material thing when actually it's not it's a myth sent from the unconscious to tell them that they're unmoored so the chaos is coming the water's coming yes right yes it, and they they take it as a sort of weird futurism where we use the technology rather than going to the tradition and rather than going to the thing that would because them. they're trapped in in framing that's why yeah, they do it right. the way you're saying yeah yeah and in framing it's gotten so much worse than just uh where it begins which is utilitarianism where we things are still an extension of us obviously technology is us technology is also being you could call it old being because it's turned up authentic beings turned away from us right because we are the void in beings for being itself like i said and knowledge is sort of capture of that authentic being you think about it a capture of it so it is being this technique but we work for it now be authentic beings turned away and this sort of old being which is technique very well we said dis disconnected from it a, a better way to say it is old being no no it's perfect kind of get that perfect so it's like old being 
uh, decayed being that isn't connected to the source, which is the ground of being. That's essence. When we say essence, that just means ground. And think about it. The ground is the thing before you have any concepts. That's the ground of being. That's the, the, the this, the whole thing as a whole, without any concept. Anyway, we're disconnected from that. But being itself, all technology is being itself. But we're run by it. Think about it. The technological system. We're forced, say, people are forced to work at Woolworths at home. There is something wrong with that. When you feel something's wrong, like, I don't feel like, why should I be here doing something that's completely meaningless, like a robot as a checkout guy? Yeah, sometimes you have to have those jobs, fair enough. But your parents will say, oh, that's just how things are. But no, that's not how things were. How things were, the world was world in a different way. But you've been made a cog in the machine of what, what we participated in turning being into. Because again, this authentic being is disconnected. The old being is this technology. It runs you. You are its cog. And that's the economy. That's the machine. That's real. That's real being. It's an organism now, and you're an extension of it. And what we need to constantly do, and I've got up here, I've got the work is ultimately for the sake of English being with folk and demos before economics. We need to constantly remind ourselves, and obviously God and worship, to keep ourselves out of the economic frame. Because that's the machine keeps putting, and we need money to survive. That I get it, but we have to have the thing underneath our work, underneath this conversation, to make it something more than just that. And you think about it when you see shit content. Usually, it means because they're for the sake of which is economy, and you go, "This guy is just a grifter." Because he's for Dude, the sake I, of which is the. the I love that you brought it there. I love that you brought it there. Yeah. And You're so absolutely this is, right. And I just added one more thing to this. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I'm not what, trying to. No, no, no. I don't, no, no. But I, I love you jumping in anyway because it's good. But anyway, I just want to quickly add to that is that that's why I would say now, and I've just articulated it this way, is that I would say I'm a postmodern traditionalist futurist in that way, is that it's, it's knowing the past, but finding the for the sake of which, connecting with being, and then having this grand vision for the future. It's not just trying to recall something that was. It's understanding what these things truly mean with a new hermeneutic uh, and finding the ground, which refreshes everything that is true. Even the past where we, we didn't understand it properly, there's an authentic interpretation of all the stuff that was as well. You, pretty modern usually, but not always. You, you can look into these things. But it, the great thing about that is you can throw out all these crappy interpretations from even Victorians because they didn't get it. But anyway, you were about to jump in on that point where I said, these grifters, wrong for the sake of, is economy, which we must keep the gold within. Well, that's what I'm talking about with the gold within. I was more just, uh, uh, that, that's just my nature to like encourage people and to get really excited, uh, especially mm. if you say something that really resonates with me. So that's really more what I was doing. But I, I agree with you completely that uh, these people kind of make the, uh, they make the ideas uh, uh, subservient to the the prophet, and it just doesn't make sense to me how these some of these people generate so much money with their bullshit ideas, and that's why I get really so uh, it's so rewarding to see people with really good original ideas really get rewarded and really survive and 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 thrive. Really, you know, I don't know how much you pay attention to. Well, I know you pay attention to Bronze Age pervert. He's a great example. Uh, somebody like Curtis Yarvin. Um, who's been on my show and this guy, uh, Daryl Cooper mm. of Martyr Maid, who's been on my show. I don't know if you know him, but these guys uh, really put the work in and they're finally able to like do 
this with that what we're doing but they're mm. it's sustaining them i mean i don't know if your show is sustaining you but mine isn't so you know uh hit hit subscribe to the paid subscriber <laughs> yeah. if if you're listening yeah. um but in a way and i hate to sound so like you know so so self-aggrandizing or whatever it's like it almost and it almost like maybe even sounds like cope but it's like for us to be doing this as a side project it's it's really just for the love you know what i mean mm. it's really just for the 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 sake of conversation it's for generating ideas you know um i i definitely i mean if it's not coming through uh you know i'd be shocked that we are clearly like feeding off each other and encouraging each other yeah yeah if it's if it's not full duty it's pretty obvious i think yeah, it's so get, it's very obvious yeah you, you can get some people there's heaps of people in our movement that are probably very derivative M most people there are probably there are probably people there i, I don't know I don't think I could name any. You probably could. I well, you could name enough. like the bigger ones, like that are kind of outside of our. Oh yeah, studio, yeah, like like Ben uh, Shapiro or Jordan yeah, Peterson. Tim, Tim Pool is one of them. Yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. People love to rag on him. He's his for the sake of is sort yeah. of being center of attention. He's the not even man. saying anything. If you listen to him, he's no. not even saying anything. And he doesn't listen to it. You know, there's nothing. He's not a reader. He's not a theory cell like we are. So he's not yeah. thinking. Yeah, I don't want to brag on him too much because so many people are like this. I guess. Yeah, and I don't have a major problem with Tim. I don't Poole. have a big problem with him either. But the fact is, that's the that's he's the sort of person that uh, that's that's it's power looking for power for its own sake. It doesn't have a sort of for the sake of for a particular reason. It's not trying to save anything. Because when you have that, it imbues everything you do with that duty, and people feel it. They feel that you have a certain authenticity to what you do. Um, yeah, that's hard to maintain that because you do have economic concerns, and you know I'm 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 breaking even on what I do now, which is good. Um, but the fact is, you do get wrapped up in the data of your YouTube channel and stuff, and so that's the thing. You need to have something on the board. You need to have sacred space and these things to make sure it's constantly giving form to, because every idea you have is given form to by that how the world works. Because where does the idea come from? And that's another thing. So people are looking for takes. Everyone's got, oh, what's my take? Yeah, my let's, yeah take? I'm an anti-take show here. Yeah, I, I, hate <laughs> I, they hate even, I even hate the word take. I know, right? Because it drives us, it drives us to be, oh, I've got to have this original take. Where do I get it from? Oh, look at this, or Bronze Age Private, or whatever. And then, of course, Bronze Age Private's great. I'm not talking about him in particular. I just mean, um, you know, people looking, oh, I've got to uh, beat this guy, or beat that yeah, guy. Yeah, right, no, I, 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 I get respond to Bronze Age Private. Yeah, yeah exactly right. This whole economy ecosystem yeah. gets built up and it's grif really it's grifters. It's grifting. Yeah, that's right. And people and some people, Geo was recently talking about this, too, is that, uh, yeah, some people just a derivative. They'll just repeat like, even that person. What's his name? The guy that's got that pose. What's his name again? The ball guy that's really big in the moment. Men's ah, Andrew Tate. Oh, Andrew yeah, Tate. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, whatever. It's good for young men to see someone that's pushing masculinity, whatever. But obviously that's very derivative of PUA stuff. It's the same totally. thing. Yeah. Repeat it, right? And, um, but I think that, yeah, you want something that's underlined, underlined by duty. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that. Um, yeah, I wait, think well, I'm oh, yeah, to... The take machine, oh, take machine. Sure, 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 sure. Sorry, the take machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone's looking to look at someone else's proposition though, aren't they? Oh, I'll read Heidegger, I'll read this. What Heidegger helps you understand too, it's both. It's that do you can do these things as well, but remember, look to being, because where did the original ideas not even be obsessive with originality either? 
Look to things outside the field. Look to being itself and see what comes. Because that's where ideas, what is an idea? It's, it's a touching of being, right? And your sight isn't just visual. Your sight is also cognitive as well, right? So to touch authentic, what is authentically true, you can do that with thinking into things. Say you go out into countryside, American countryside, and it, fe it feels normal to you. It feels like it's covered over with all these boring ideas, right? It's just, oh, I've seen this before on TV. That's the coveringness of inauthentic being, right? You can use your mind to break down the uh, the forceptions. This is you aligning yourself, your being, to get to the true as well. So it's not just vision. It's not just oh, I have to go someplace to see it, because vision is it doesn't just take eyes to see to know. It's it's Plato talks about this. Is that our vision, our, our uh, not understanding our whatever the word is, our gripping stuff is our getting get, getting that's from being. It's from being. So my point basically is, don't forget, is that you, and you really get this when you're just uh, spitballing on a piece of paper or you're doing some free writing. And this is what Jung did too with his imaginal practices uh, and free writing. And Swedenborg did this as well with his auto writing. Is that, that's, where does that come from? Jung calls it the superior function, whatever you want to call it. That's being, that's looking to, to see what being brings to you, what clears to you. If you, get, if you dwell long enough and just hold with something, because we just jump around, don't we? From this task to that task. But if you just let it to see what comes to you, and then, because we're looking online to find the take or whatever. What does your authenticness, what here, once you break down the bullshit, what does it tell you about an interpretation of something? Just trust that and see what comes up and let it flow. And you can critique it later because there are two parts of our brain one is that, that judgment rational side. You're switching that off. That's what you learn in screenwriting and drama and improv is actually, it's quite a good skill set to jump, turn that off and to be able to open yourself to what is and let it unfold to you in its being. That makes sense. It does. And write, writers say that all the time about, you know, what writing is when they get into the zone or the mode mm -hmm. or whatever. It's like the, they're they're just a medium for the the writing coming through them and the characters like a lot of the writers will say the characters exist independent of them <laughs> excuse me they're just breathing life into them through their writing or something like that mm. so yeah yeah so the internet um you know oh oh i remember what i was gonna say i'm i'm, I'm starting to uh wind down for the listener here we are uh on opposite sides sides of the globe so for me it's getting a little late i think i think i have to draw to a close uh, but but I remember what I was going to say is that um, it was inspirational to me the way you sort of um, called yourself a would you call yourself a traditionalist futurist is that what you said mm, yeah because uh, that's something that gives me a lot of like apprehension because I I feel this like push and pull inside of being traditional in the sense that i believe in like basically like a christian set of morals a mother and a father raising their children and the, they you know the children need both parents in the home and they need a stable home life and parents should should recognize you know a certain code of morality and that they should raise their children within that code and and you know extrapolate the whole thing from it um we should we should have taboos and standards and we should hold other people in society to these standards. Uh, but this is a very outmoded way of being that 
I think is better than the way things are now, the hedonistic way things are now. And the, and I see the hedonism of the 70s. Well, I guess it starts really in the 60s, 70s, all the way up through till now as this great unwinding and this fraying of the fabric of society, you know. But when I think about all that, it's pretty much immediately obvious to me that we can't just like tomorrow go back to living like nuclear families where the mom stays home and the parents are both like ex uh, exhibiting like or, or, or excuse me. um, uh, The parents are both sort of uh, living within the traditional gender roles and things like that. So I have to think about like, OK, so if it, we can't go back to that what can we do? And we have to look to the future and we have to look to the future where I think society is probably arranged in like a totally new way. So we do have to reevaluate all the values. We really do. And we have to invaluate the values of today to set a new set of values. And I don't exactly know what those are going to be, but whatever they are, you know, I definitely think they need to be informed by the traditional values with the understanding that whatever we come up with you know if we are able to rally ourselves if we really are able to pull this off right and come up with something and build something new uh a new arc into the future what is that moral set what is that moral framework going to look like well uh and as i'm trying to trying to express here it's going to look different from the old traditional morals and values but it's not going to be the hedonism of the last few decades it's going to be some synthesis of the two, which is this new thing that was informed by the past, filtered through the present into whatever the new thing is. Mm. But I, And, you know, I could speculate on what the new morals and values look like and the new societal structure might look like when everything settles. But it's that's a, a tough thing to do because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And you don't want to sort of like set it up ahead of time. You kind of want to let things play out. And that's the futurist in me. You know, you want to have a vision and you want to have a purpose and you want to have like an intention. But you also kind of don't want to force anything and you kind of want to let things play out to some extent. Yeah. And you can't just and the thing is, it's what's your procedure to do it. You can't just uh, uh, create them in the sense of program them propositionally, right? Nietzsche's, right, right. Nietzsche's big difference was to use the procedure of, and I'll wrap this up as quick as I can, um, was to use the procedure of will to power to rank them. What his clear thing was that, that's what he was doing with the reevaluation. It wasn't choosing every new value. It was using this will to power, which is just will. It's moreness. It's that's what will is. It's that's what we he saw us as this rapture, which wants more. And he wanted to rank everything by that, which is essentially is what is aligns with that. What to give more, which would be, I guess, to give moreness to uh to which is power, really. And you can see people doing that in the with the state, with uh you see that in, in sort of uh the World War II era. We were already in that will to, and as you said earlier, Nietzsche didn't invent this. We we're already in this will to powerness. This is what he saw in the world and articulated it. And he wanted us to get rid of all the propositional understanding of what our values should be. He thought we'd be less. I guess he. I guess he thought. I'm not a Nietzsche expert, but I guess he thought that, uh, we we're being held back by this proposition. The thing is, he was a propositional thinker too, and that's the trouble. How are you actually going to get those values to stick in the unconscious, right? Are we going to tell people this is the value? That's not how it works. Even Jung talks about this in his interpretation of Zarathustra. He says these values aren't, uh, you can create surface values, that's true, because but these deep ones, these values of clan, 
are deep down. We've confused ourselves by covering over with propaganda, say leftist propaganda, all this stuff. This games are ethnic values and various things. And then you even have some that are driven by the sort of post-religion. It is very propositional, though. They don't have practices. Uh, they don't have procedural, uh, perspectival knowing uh, the practices that articulate that sort of thing or sacred practices. They're driven by the propositions. But underneath that, most people deep down still have these actual ethnic values. And because when I say value, it's a structure that's not propositional, that's in the unconscious, maybe connected to epigenetics. I don't know about that. But I'm just going to use metaphysics and, and psychology to describe what it is. As Jung said, there's the personal unconscious, uh, which is where you can have semblance in the personal. You can have deception, self-deception in that, because that's also involved with your personal memories. But below that's the collective. That's values of clan, those sort of things, right? And so those things push and pull you, but you might have been denying them all your life. So they're still down there in potential. And this is what I talk about with my project, is that if you can clear the semblance of the propaganda and the bullshit, people are deeply impelled by this stuff. So that's what I think we need to go and grab, because it's hard. How, what are you going to do? How do you create the, the Ubermensch? How do you do it? How do you use the will to power? How do you create the procedure to do it, to imprint it? It doesn't work that way. It's not propositional like that, to imprint them. You need a full procedure to do that. Um, yeah. And, uh, philosophers, in some sense, not the best person to do that because they particularly deal. That's why they always go to poetry because they particularly deal with propositions and logos. And the thing that imprints values is underneath that. It's in different forms. And it, in some sense, even Heidegger agreed that it can't be formalized like logos. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And Heidegger in particular, it's, it's always like venerating Holderlin and poets and poetry mm. um yeah so i mean right that's that's exactly what i'm saying it's exactly right and you, you i'm glad you brought up nietzsche that's a great way to exemplify what i mean about uh accelerationism or futurism um the will to power is simply the overcoming of the nihilism and mm. in using the will to power to overcome nihilism the new values will emerge if if we make it I mean, we could, I guess we could fall into civilizational error and into the civilizational mistake and um, nothing's going to happen until there's a complete collapse and there's a rebuilding by uh, several generations in the future of something totally new. But that's like, I don't even want to go there. You know, that's like so far outside. Well, that, that's the, yeah, I mean, we, we could go on for another hour talking yeah, about that. Yeah. But, and Heidegger would have said, well, that's, that's how being is now manifesting in terms of the sending of being from the ground of it back in the Greek times. So he's articulating how the world, well, how the world in his time manifested himself, like we said earlier. So how do we know that's authentically what is? He wants to rank it based on that. There are problems with that. So whether we take that as the procedure, I don't think that's a good procedure personally to rank Wait, everything which? based well, on what gives moreness on what gives on what because will to more if you rank everything about will to more i suppose it might go it's more animalistic in a way i'm not i don't really want to formulate an, an argument against nietzsche uh, right now because people i know who watch this are very nietzsche <laughs> nietzschean yeah. so i'd rather have more experience in it than formulate it because this formulating for me now right now is reading a lot into it but yeah it's basically how heidegger articulates it um, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure that would be the, a good, 
it'd be useful in some ways, and you can see this with the Nietzscheans pu pushing on this, saying, oh, well, we need to evolutionarily pick our own ethnic group and push this, because, of course, that's, it's the will to power of that ethnic group. But anyway, it's complicated. You're right. It's epically complicated, but that might not be what is authentically what is true to being, how Nietzsche is articulating it. Um, there could just be the set where the particular sending of being is in the particular era that we are in. Because we did agree earlier that that was what he was articulating. He didn't kill God. It's just what was, right? Yeah. He's saying we should reorder everything based on how reality is. But how reality is to him, is that simply how being is currently manifesting based on where it is from the point that it was originally sent back in Greek times and that's moved through its different stages, as Heidegger calls it? Calls it? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, listen, awesome I... conversation. Yeah, great conversation. I mean, again, I was just like on a, in a heightened state of consciousness the whole time. And I'm I'm like, hi, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fall asleep, but uh, I, I would love to just keep this going. I mean, absolutely. As, as, sure. as, as often as possible. You really need to have my friend Athenian Stranger. I don't know. You might be familiar, more familiar with him than I realized. And I'm not uh, but that familiar, but I've, I've got him. I've loved some of his stuff. He's a, a Nietzschean and a Heideggerian, and he knows Aristotle and Plato very, very well. And he could he could fill in a lot of this and the what you were talking about about the over the line with uh, Junger and Heidegger he's he's very well read on that subject and he's able to give you Junger's influence on Heidegger which is which is profound uh, so so yeah I will we'll I'll follow up with you after the show um, I think he's somebody you need to to sit down and have a conversation with. I think it would be a very good conversation. And uh, me and him have been talking a lot about this Nietzsche that we're talking about. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, so that conversation isn't over either, but this one has to end for now. So thank you so much for coming on and spending the time here. And any last words pleasure, before man. I sign off? Nothing really. Just God bless. Thanks for listening, everyone, if you made it this far. Um... Yeah, it's been, I hope it's been as interesting for everyone as it has been for me. Yeah, it was extremely so. exciting. Uh, so check out links in bio for all Scott's content. It's uh, highly recommended. Some big names on your show. Uh, some some important figures. Morgoth was the first one what I checked out. Right uh, and many others. So uh, the Astral Flight Simulation back. is signing back off. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>